Hello all, and I welcome you to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that seeks out and recounts some of the more obscure and unfamiliar crimes, both solved and unsolved, that the UK has in its records. I'm the host Paul, the creator of the show and the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are the enthusiasts who join me, and it's fantastic to have you here, it really is. And for the penultimate episode of the second series, Where's the Time Gone? I hope that this episode finds all of you guys well. Before we get on with this week's episode, which is the first part of a two-part season finale, I'd like to put out thanks for the latest reviews that the show's received. They've been very kind and they've contained some pointers that I have addressed and I'm happy to take on board. As I've said many times before, I'd also like to thank my latest Patreon supporters. That's Laura R, David Clark, Wendy Bourne, Jacqueline Hughes, Matthew Hewitt, Neil Clifton, Amy Stapleton and James Kahn. I don't know if it's THE James Kahn, but if it is, don't you move that penguin you dirty birdie. Very appreciated all anyway. I hope that you enjoy the 8 bonus episodes that becoming a Patreon supporter of the show brings, with a new one released on the 1st of every month. There'll be one on the 1st of October of course, even though I'll be on my break between series over then. You too can become a supporter of the show if you should wish to. Just simply look up the True Crime Enthusiast on Patreon or head across to the show notes links where you'll find details of the show Patreon page and a link to it alongside my show notes as ever this week. I'd also like to say that the True Crime Enthusiast podcast is coming up to being a year old in just a couple of weeks and I would like, as a birthday bonus to the show to release one of the Patreon subscriber episodes as a thank you bonus to all of you guys for your support, your listens and helping the show to make it to a year old. It's your listens, feedback, your comments and your reviews of the show that all help the True Crime Enthusiast podcast keep going because you do get times, believe me, where doing a show such as this can get a bit on top of you. You have deadlines that you set yourself, research, writing, recording and the absolutely dreaded editing that you have to do. Then what you strive over when you've put it out, it gets received, and people listen to it, and it does make it all worthwhile. And before you know it, your show is a year old. So where you guys come in, is that I'll be posting a Twitter poll, uh, just before then, with the bonus episode titles, nothing more than that, and you guys can vote for the one that you wish to hear on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast's birthday, the 26th of September. It's a bit of a blind vote, just whichever one has the catchiest title, and the poll will be up there shortly. Now have a promo with a difference this week. It's a US podcast with a difference, and it's one I think is a fantastic idea. It's an interactive mystery podcast called Greatest Gumshoe, where you guys help solve the crime using a mix of listening to the podcast and going on the social media. It's relatively new, it was only released at the end of August this year, but it sounds well thought out and genuinely entertaining, and I'm sure that it's going to be massive. I'll pass you over to one of the hosts of Greatest Gumshoe, Anna, to explain some more. Hey, I'm Anna, the host of the new podcast, The Greatest Gumshoe. Have you ever wanted to solve a crime but get kind of freaked out by it? 
We get that. So we're bringing you a whole new genre of podcast, interactive mystery. Each season, we're going to tackle a new fictional case and let you put your detective caps on to try and solve it. Listen to each episode, then head over to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the likes, and join myself and my social media hostess with the mostest, Melissa, to delve even deeper into evidence we share there. Have conversations with other gumshoes and talk about theories. We're even going to pick a winner as the greatest gumshoe. So season one, we're talking about the fictional murder of Mariah Collins, who disappears during the devastation of Hurricane Katrina in 2005. We'll be driving clues each episode starting August 29th, which is, you guessed it, the 13th anniversary of Katrina. It's going to be part murder mystery, part game show, but a whole lot of fun, and we hope you'll join us. Thanks, Anna and Melissa. It sounds pretty cool, that, doesn't it? Greatest Gumshoe. I thought it was an absolutely fantastic idea. You can catch new episodes of Greatest Gumshoe every Monday, and it can be found wherever you guys source your shows from, with a link to the show, as always, with this week's show notes. So this week, then, on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. And so the end is near, and so I face... No, stop that straight away. I don't have a voice for singing. In fact, the only person that I can sing better than is Ian Brown, which isn't too hard because I must admit pretty much anybody on earth can sing better than King Monkey himself. But no, the end of this series is near. We're at the penultimate episode of Series 2 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. It's been a ball and an absolute pleasure bringing episodes each week to you guys, and I shall be back real soon to deliver more of the same, believe me. But I do have a two-part finale before then. The case that I've opted to cover for the penultimate episode involves a lot of information, a lot of speculation, a lot of assumption, and a great deal of mystery. It's part one or two because next week... Other crimes will be discussed that are both precursors and successors, it's widely believed, to the case that we'll look at this week, all of which the same individual is strongly believed to be responsible for. Next week's name has been one on the fridge chalkboard for a long time now, but we shall get to that next week. The part this week is also arguably the highest profile case that I've featured on the show to date, and whilst it's not something that I usually do, this is always a case that's intrigued me, and so it was always a tale that I wanted to put out on the show and to do my own spin on. I'm sure from the title alone that the case this week doesn't need too much of an introduction. Please be advised that this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast contains descriptions of events that some listeners may find disturbing or distressing, so please use your discretion, guys. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we head back to 1986 to Fulham for part one of Mr. Kipper. Today, the premises at 654 Fulham Road in the London district of Fulham is occupied by Chesterton's estate agents sitting on the corner of where the busy Fulham Road meets the residential Chesterton Road. More than 30 years ago, 
Another estate agent occupied the offices there, Sturgis and Sons, a firm that were within the space of a few days in the summer of 1986 to become the most famous estate agent in the country. Yet for nothing to do with sales performances or customer reputation. Just before 5pm on the afternoon of Monday the 28th of July 1986, the manager of Sturgis, 28-year-old Mark Gurdon, picked up the telephone in his office and dialed an unfamiliar number to himself. It was a telephone call to the parents of one of his staff members and the call opened with the following words. I don't want to worry you Mrs Lamplew, but we've got a bit of a problem. Has Susanna had lunch with you? Those few words were to launch what was at the time, and still remains, one of the most baffling cases in British criminal history. With them, the name of an estate agent who'd worked at Sturgis for just 16 months, 25-year-old Susanna Lamplew, known as Susie or Suze to her friends and loved ones, and Susie is what we shall refer to her as throughout this episode, was thrust into the public consciousness. By doing so, they helped create a mystery that remains to this day. That one had been a routine Monday morning in the Sturgis office, and up to lunchtime Susie had been a usual, cheery, professional self. Amongst the banter and chatter that's commonplace in any office on a Monday morning after a weekend off, Susie had been somewhat distracted that morning by having to make telephone calls to her bank and different establishments about a checkbook, a pocket diary and postcard that she'd lost the previous Friday evening whilst on a night out in the Prince of Wales pub in Putney with the boyfriend Adam Leagood. Now these items had been found by the pub landlord of the Prince of Wales, who'd contacted Susie's bank, who had subsequently contacted her, and she'd arranged to collect them from the pub after work that Monday evening. She took some telephone calls from potential clients as well that Monday morning, and had left the Sturgis office just before lunchtime, between 12.35 and 12.40pm, to go on a routine house-showing call. Before she left, she'd collected the agent's floor plan and folder of particulars to number 37 Shorrells Road in Fulham, a furnished three-storey terraced property only about a mile away from the office that had come onto the Sturgis books just a few days before. Susie collected the keys, which were retained on a large yellow Sturgis fob from behind the desk, and grabbing her purse, her car keys and house keys, but leaving her handbag behind, by all accounts left the office to drive the short three or four minute journey that it would have taken to get to the property from where her company car, a white Ford Fiesta, was parked in nearby Whittingstall Road, which is a residential street only about 150 yards away from the Sturgis office. Susie was ambitious and driven, and since beginning work at Sturgis at the beginning of 1985, had quickly learned the tricks of the estate agent's trade. She had the gift of the gab and became experienced at and good at obtaining commissions from selling houses which was helped by her easygoing friendly manner and her strikingly attractive looks. Found later in Susie's desk diary on the page for Monday the 28th of July written in hurried shorthand were the words that have become synonymous with the case. 12.45 Mr Kipper 
37 Chorals OS. Now if you're in the estate agents game, this would be recognised as a standard and commonplace entry. It denotes a client, Mr Kipper, was viewing the property at number 37 Chorals Road at 12.45pm. The OS is an abbreviation for outside, where Susie would have met the client. Normal procedure at Sturgis when a new client phoned or called into the office was for the negotiator to fill out a card containing details of the client's requirements name, location, property type, the price they were willing to pay etc for future reference in case a property arrived in that would be suitable for them. But for some reason Susie hadn't done this for Mr Kipper. No one else at Sturgis had ever heard of Mr Kipper. By mid-afternoon that Monday, Susie had still not returned to the office and Mark Gurdon and the rest of her colleagues were beginning to get worried. Even accounting for traffic heading there and back and a leisurely viewing, Shorrells Road was so close by that Susie should have been back some time before. She wasn't the type of employee to take long unauthorised lunches. This was something that Sturgis were quite strict about and having only taken the one set of property keys, she couldn't have gone on to another property for a viewing. There were also no other entries in her diary for that afternoon, up until 6pm. Mark Gurdon eventually decided, along with a colleague, to head over to Shorrells Road themselves to check. Perhaps Susie was having car trouble. They duly set off there with a spare set of keys for number 37, but upon arrival they found nothing amiss but no sign of Susie at the property either. The next door neighbour at number 35, Harry Wrigling, noticing the two men outside the property, soon struck up a conversation with them when asked if he'd seen Susie. Yes, replied Wrigling, he had seen a man and woman outside number 37 earlier that afternoon around lunchtime and he thought that they were prospective buyers for the property. The man, he remembered, was 25 to 30 years of age medium height at about 5 feet 8 inches tall, clean shaven with lengthy comb back hair, smartly dressed in a dark business suit, prosperous looking as though he was used to dressing like that, was how Harry described him, and although he'd taken less notice of the woman, he had noted that she was blonde and smartly dressed. He went on further to say that he thought the couple may possibly have been arguing, and that the man had bundled the woman into a car. From the description he gave and the timings, it sounded like Susie, and was this smartly dressed man Mr Kipper? Mark Gurdon returned to the Sturgis office and contacted both Charing Cross and St Stephen's Hospitals to see if Susie had been admitted as a patient, but this drew a blank. By now thoroughly alarmed, Good and then went to Fulham Police Station to report the situation to them, but finding a massive queue there, abandoned the idea at that time. Returning to the Sturgis office, he tried ringing the telephone number of Susie's flat to see if she was there, but nothing. He went back again to Shorrells Road, still nothing. By this time, Gurdon was concerned enough to make the telephone call to Susie's mother, Diana Lamplew, who in turn rang her husband Paul, who worked in the central London office of the Law Society. Paul had already left for home that evening when she called, so she tried Susie's older brother Richard, who lived in Hertfordshire. 
She couldn't, however, get through to him either. Her other two daughters were away in New Zealand and couldn't be reached, but eventually, after some other unsuccessful calls, Diana managed to reach a friend of Susie's named Doug Williams by telephone. Although he hadn't seen Susie himself, he offered to ring around friends of the social set that he and Susie shared to see if any of those had and report any findings back to Diana. By this time, Paul Lampley had arrived home to be told the news that his eldest daughter was missing. Paul was to later say that as soon as he saw his wife as he walked through the door that day, he knew that something very serious had happened, and when he was told that he feared at some level, even then, that his eldest daughter was already dead. Whilst the Lamplews were telephoning around Susie's friends and acquaintances, exactly six hours after she'd left the Sturgis office, Mark Gurdon phoned and reported Susie to Fulham Police Station as a missing person. Ten minutes later, at 6.55pm, an officer telephoned Mark Gurdon back to gain more details, and Mark recounted the known circumstances of the day and an outline of what he'd done to try to locate Susie. It sounded strange from the off, although many people do go missing for a variety of reasons. A normal, well-adjusted young woman who goes out at lunchtime on routine business with no apparent worries or issues and who doesn't even take a handbag with her could reasonably be expected to come back. Add to that a client nobody knew anything about, a witnessed argument and her being bundled into a car according to the next-door neighbour at 35 Shorrells Road, and it was enough to make police act immediately, taking it very seriously indeed. Within 10 minutes of the second conversation, Miss Perfile FF584-1-54 and PNC WM number 139534C, the relevant file headings for the investigation, were opened and the search for Susie began. A full physical description of Susie was issued force-wide. Five feet six inches tall, blonde streaked hair, medium athletic build, wearing a dark jacket, peach-coloured blouse and a grey skirt, two rings and low-cut black stiletto-heeled shoes. Along with a full description of Susie's company-owned car, a white Ford Fiesta, registration number, B-396-GAN A senior CID officer, Detective Inspector Peter Johnston, was appointed SIO at that time and his first course of action was to detail police to undertake a search of both 37 Shorrells Road and Susie's flat, a £70,000 top floor two-bedroom flat in Disraeli Road in Putney that she shared with a 25-year-old advertising executive named Nick Bryant. When police arrived there, they found no one home and forced entry to the flat, but found no signs of any disturbance or anything out of the ordinary, and no sign of Susie. Nothing out of the ordinary was found at Shorrells Road either. But a few minutes after they'd left the flat, a message was relayed over the police radio that Susie's car had been found. Just before 10pm, PC Christopher Drollery had noticed the white Fiesta parked north-facing on the eastern side of Stevenage Road, a dead-end residential road that runs parallel to the football stadium Craven Cottage 
which is the home of Fulham FC, and which is a mile from Shorrells Road and just two miles from the Sturgis office. The vehicle was found parked askew from the pavement and overlapping a garage entrance by more than a foot, making it appear that it had been abandoned in a hurry. The vehicle driver's door was found unlocked, the handbrake was found to be in the off position, and the ignition keys were missing. It was confirmed to be Susie's vehicle, the vehicle registration matched hers, and her purse, still containing credit cards and £15 in cash, was found in the driver's door compartment. But why was it parked more than a mile from Shorrells Road, and in the opposite direction to her office? As it was by now dark, an order was given that a police guard be placed on the vehicle overnight, and it would be photographed from every angle at first light before the vehicle was lifted and removed for a full forensic examination. A careful cursory search of the car was performed, and found the purse that confirmed it was Susie's car, but otherwise the vehicle was empty, apart from a straw boater-type hat, confirmed as being Susie's, that lay on the back shelf. It was, however, also noted that the driver's seat of the vehicle was pushed considerably further back from its usual driving position, the position that Susie used because of her height and build, as if to accommodate someone taller and of a different build to drive the vehicle. This implied to police that a man had driven Susie Lamplew's car to Stevenage Road. By day two, police were treating Susie's disappearance as a major inquiry, and Detective Chief Superintendent Nicholas Carter was appointed Senior Investigating Officer the following morning. From first light, a mass search of the areas around Charles Road, Stevenage Road, and Susie's flat in Disraeli Road were undertaken to search for any possible clues or evidence. Everything, from empty properties to drains and bins, were searched. Armed with the now celebrated photograph of Susie, extensive house-to-house -house inquiries in these areas got underway. The white Ford Fiesta was removed from the scene and scrutinised by forensics officers at the Metropolitan Police Forensic Science Laboratory at Lambeth, and Harry Riglin helped police to create an artist's impression of the man that he'd seen with the woman outside number 37 Shorrells Road the previous day. Police helicopters were used to scour the immediate areas, and because of the proximity of the River Thames to where Susie's car was found, the Marine Division of the Metropolitan Police began a lengthy and wide-ranging search of the river. Susie's anxious parents, eager to do something, even loaded up their car with their two dogs and headed from their home to help search. Meanwhile, Susie's current boyfriend, a 27-year-old insurance broker named Adam Leagood, and his flatmate, Nick Bryant, were both questioned by police for several hours that first evening. Both were revealed to have a good relationship with Susie. She and Adam had only been in a relationship for three months, whereas she'd been flatmates with Nick for a substantial period longer, but their relationship had never been anything but purely platonic. Both Adam and Nick gave comprehensive accounts of their movements that day that were to be corroborated in full by friends and colleagues, and both were eliminated of suspicion in Susie's disappearance. Susie's work colleagues at the Sturgis office were all questioned on the second day, 
and all confirmed that she'd left between 12.35 and 12.40pm for a viewing. Nothing out of the ordinary. All were found to have nothing but fondness for Susie, and the extent of her relationships with them in turn was that of a friendly, working, professional one, and nothing more. All members of Sturgis staff could account for their movements, and all were eliminated from the investigation. Detective Superintendent Carter decided that he needed to call for all possible witnesses to come forward, and brought in the media to publicise the investigation. He would also publicise the artist's impression of the man believed to be Mr Kipper, which the press would publish, sensing that this was to be a massive story. At 3pm on Tuesday the 29th of July, press conference was held at Fulham Police Station and was attended in force not just by local journalists, but by representatives from the national press who had by now gotten wind of the story. This press conference was the start of a tale that would dominate the media over the ensuing weeks and months, and by the following morning, the missing Susie Lamplew had become nationwide news. Headlines such as Kidnap, House Sale Girl Vanishes on Car Trip with Client and Fears as Sales Girl Susie, 25, Vanishes screamed out of the front pages of the national press and the Lamplew home found themselves besieged. Well-wishing family and friends of the Lamplews arrived at the house alongside TV, radio and newspaper journalists and reporters. The story was that big and captured the public conscious so much that the Lamplews were rarely out of the media spotlight for a considerable time to come. They to a certain extent got used to it, the newspapers and TV interviews, and throughout retained a certain dignity and composure. They used the media spotlight they found themselves in to help create and promote something which I'll go on to a bit later in the episode. Susie's mother and father on this initial press conference appealed for the person that they believed was holding Susie to let her go and this appearance brought calls and letters from all over the country. Most were well-meaning and genuinely offered assistance, theories and reports of potential sightings but others were the usual malicious and time-wasting ones that an investigation such as this attracts. For example, someone got in touch and pointed out that if Mr Kipper was given the pre-name Dan, the words combined formed an anagram of kidnapper. Then closer to home, a scrap of paper was found on the road near the River Thames in Putney that said, Help! Mr Kipper is holding me. I just, I, I don't see the point of why people do things like that. It's just mindless and, well, well just a bell end, really, aren't they, for doing things like that? That morning before the press conference, though, police had received a telephone call from Mrs. Wendy Jones, a lady who lived in Stevenage Road at number 123, opposite where the Fiesta was found abandoned. She told police that the vehicle had certainly been there on Monday at 12.45pm and she was firm in what she'd seen because she knew the neighbour whose garage was being obstructed by the vehicle, Anne Mayen, and remembered wondering if Anne's husband Leo would be able to move his vehicle out of the garage past it. She could also confirm the time as she'd gone to call for Anne immediately after noticing the vehicle and both women had driven to the nearby NatWest Bank where Wendy distinctly recalled seeing the bank clock 
reading 12.49pm as she stood in the queue. She recalled the car still being there some hours later when she returned from shopping, and of course, it was still there at 10pm when it was discovered by police. If this were accurate, Susie would have had to have driven straight there after leaving the Sturgis office at lunchtime. There was simply not enough time to have gone via Shorrells Road first. This sighting, more importantly, the timings, were to provide one of the greatest conundrums of the investigation. Many witnesses were found who corroborated the car being there at different times, parked in the position and spot where police discovered it. Yet no one reported seeing or hearing any kind of disturbance in this busy London street, and Susie was a fit and capable young woman who would have put up a fight against an abductor. Two workmen were even laying pipes just yards from where the vehicle was parked that afternoon and reported nothing. They'd not seen who'd left it there and had not seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. Many people were found who'd used the street as a thoroughfare who'd also noticed the vehicle but had not seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. But residents of Shorrells Road were also reporting nothing out of the ordinary that day. Harry Riglin remained the only witness who'd seen a man and a woman outside number 37 just before 1pm, a woman who he believed was Susie. Yet he consistently would remember other details when he was questioned further about the sighting. For example, he remembered subsequently that he believed the man to be carrying a bottle of champagne with a red, white and blue ribbon around the neck. Then he believed the car that both had gotten into was a dark blue BMW. So if this were accurate, this would account for, but it wouldn't explain, Susie's car being parked in Stevenage Road. She had met him there and gone off to Shorrells Road with Mr Kipper. That would make Wendy Jones's sighting correct. But why would Susie have done that? Yet there was a baffling contradiction to this sighting and one that police would understandably be more inclined to treat as reliable. A friend of Susie's named Barbara Whitfield, who was a retained agent who searched out potential houses for clients and who knew Susie through this line of work, claimed that she'd seen Susie driving a Fiesta at about 2.45pm that Monday afternoon along Fulham Palace Road from the direction of Putney. Susie had a man sat in the passenger seat of her vehicle and didn't see Barbara waving to her. Now Barbara was adamant about this sighting and she was the only person who'd come forward reporting a sighting of Susie Lamplew who knew her. So a woman, thought to be Susie, was seen talking to a man outside 37 Charles Road about 20 minutes after she'd left the office. She was seen apparently arguing with him and apparently was bundled into a vehicle and a car was definitely found a mile away, abandoned in what appeared to be a hurry, yet a friend of hers swore that she saw her driving with a man two hours after she'd left her office. Had Susie arranged to meet someone in secret, perhaps a secret lover, and the viewing at Shorrells Road was a cover? Evidence came to light to suggest the possibility that she did indeed have a mystery admirer, when Susie's manager revealed that a mystery bunch of red roses was delivered to Susie at her office just a few days before she disappeared, and she'd also received flowers to her flat. Again, we'll come on to this a bit later. 
By day three of the inquiry, which also happened to be Diana Lamplew's 50th birthday, almost everyone in the country now knew of the missing estate agent from South London. Pictures of the beautiful young woman beamed out from the front pages of every newspaper and the story dominated every news bulletin. And all the time, information was coming in at a fast rate. More people came forward saying that they'd seen what they thought was Susie and a smartly dressed man outside number 37 Shorrells Road, although the timings varied. And now, details of several cars in the road became of interest to police. A motor enthusiast who'd driven down Shorrells Road at midday that day noticed a white Ford Fiesta parked some distance down the road with another one also parked a bit further up. But what really attracted its attention was a dark blue mid-1970s model BMW parked almost directly outside number 37, which would tie in with Harry Riglin's further recollection. And a check of all registered blue BMWs in the London area began. Meanwhile, the searches, house-to-house inquiries and interviews with Susie's friends and acquaintances continued. By day five, however, Police had the difficult task of confronting the Lamplew family with the hard realities that they now had to face. More than 200 police officers had searched high and low over a large area for days. A mass inquiry had failed to produce any physical trace of Susie and there were now only two realistic possibilities. Susie had either disappeared willingly of her own accord or she'd been abducted. Whilst either were equally possible, everything they'd learned about Susie's life and character to that time suggested that the former was unlikely, so they were left with a likely possibility that she had indeed been abducted. If she had, then because there'd been no ransom requested, then she would almost certainly have been murdered by that time, and police were now searching for a body. Now it must have been a devastating and brutal thing to hear that, and you can't imagine having that said about your own child, can you? But police had to be realistic to best prepare the Lamplews for a discovery that they may make any day. On the 4th of August, police staged a reconstruction of Susie's last known movements, and WPC Suzanne Long, an officer similar in appearance to Susie and dressed in similar clothes to those that Susie was wearing when she was last seen, reenacted her last known movements. The press and television news were there in force as Suzanne left the Sturgis office and drove the white Ford Fiesta the mile to Shorrells Road, where outside number 37, she was met by Detective Sergeant Chris Ball, a lookalike posing as Mr Kipper. The reconstruction brought forward two new important witnesses, two separate witnesses who came forward to say that they'd seen a woman, believed to be Susie, in Charles Road at around the crucial time. One had seen a woman stood in the gateway of number 37, just after 12.50 holding a set of keys in her right hand, and another had seen a man and a woman matching the descriptions of both Susie and Mr Kipper sometime that afternoon, but was vague about timings. The latter witness, Nicholas Doyle, was able to add to the description used to create the artist's impression that he believed that the man had at some time had his nose broken, and he also believed that the man was holding a champagne or a wine bottle, supporting Harry's recollection. 
What gave these sightings plausibility was that they both believed the woman they'd seen to have blonder hair than the publicised photograph of Susie, and police had discovered that on the Friday before she went missing, Susie had had her hair coloured blonder and cut differently to the photographs that had been published in the media. Although these were important new witnesses that seemed to suggest Susie had indeed been at Charles Road that afternoon, they were equally as strong witnesses who saw her car a mile away at the exact time. Bit by bit the mystery deepened and detectives became convinced that the key to it lay somewhere in Susie's personal or professional life. So who was Susie Lamplew? Susie was born on the 3rd of May 1961, the second eldest of four children born to Paul and Diana Lamplew, and she entered the world at the home of her maternal grandparents in Cheltenham. Susie was a highly active and difficult child, one who was prone to constant crying and rocking of her cot, particularly at night. Her brother Richard was 16 months older than her, and her younger sisters Tamsin and Elizabeth followed 14 months and nine years later, respectively. The Lamplew children grew up in a comfortable and constantly busy household in East Sheen Avenue in Mortlake, as the dynamic Diana Lamplew ran a fitness and relaxation program from there called Slimnastics that employed several people as well as for many years taking in student lodgers. As a result of such a busy household, the once difficult Susie soon learned to mix well and be comfortable amongst others, and developed a close bond to all of her siblings, although by the time the children went to school, however, it became clear that academically, something was wrong. Both Susie and her brother Richard fell seriously behind in reading and writing, and in desperation both were placed into a co-educational private school called the Unicorn School. By age 11, Susie was transferred to the Godolphin and Latimer School for Girls, and was diagnosed with dyslexia, which she was to have throughout life, and which meant that schoolwork was exacting and confusing for her. But with patience and extra coaching from her father Paul, she was to subsequently pass six O-levels at school, gaining grades in English literature, maths, biology, scripture, geography and domestic science. She transferred to Kingston College to study for A-levels, gaining a merit in biology. As she grew into a young woman, Susie was obliging, keen to do right and to do well, and to be a credit to her parents. Everyone who met her remarked how well-dressed, well-mannered, and popular with her peers that she was, and Susie was filled with the same ambition and drive that her mother Diana had in spades. She kept fit and was a particularly enthusiastic swimmer, and she became interested in and involved with her mother's slimnastics program, where she soon became a qualified leader. Susie also became an enthusiastic windsurfer, a pastime which was partaken at whenever the Lamplew family and friends would holiday at a large house on the Welsh coast near Newport. Diana and her siblings had been left this house by a relative many years before in a will, and it became a holiday and weekend home, constantly filled with a mix of family members, friends of Paul and Diana, and friends of the Lamplew children. Already a strikingly pretty girl, it was around the age of 16 where Susie began to gain the attention of boys, leading to her first serious boyfriend, Barry Steele. The relationship was to last some months before fizzling out, 
and from then on Susie tended to drift from boyfriend to boyfriend. Always popular and attractive, finding the right man to settle down with seemed to be a preoccupation to Susie, as by now the thoughts were turning to a career for herself. Susie finally opted for a career as a beautician, and she became a student at a fashionable Chelsea salon named Joan Price's Face Place. Again here she applied herself, and again after coaching from her father for the written part and the use of her younger sister Elizabeth for the practical side, she qualified as a beautician aged 20, and Susie was immediately offered a job at the face place as a beautician. She came to gradually realise that beauty work was taken in nowhere however, it was physically tiring work and it didn't prove as lucrative as she'd expected. Yet with her hard work zest, she made extra money by doing private beauty work at clients' houses and occasionally moonlighting at a nearby salon called Secrets. By this time Susie had also moved out of the family home and was sharing a two-bedroom house in Wallum Grove in Fulham with her sister Tamsin. Both sisters were happy living together as they were close friends and confidants as well as sisters and they soon began valuing their independence. It was around this time that Susie met a man named David Hodgkinson, who became a serious, although on-off, boyfriend to her, right up until her disappearance. He introduced her to a set of friends that Diana christened the Putney set, and the social circle that Susie would move in from then on. But a beautician wasn't really an ideal career for one of the oiks that make up this dynamic of people. I don't know if you have, but have you ever watched Made in Chelsea? Christ Almighty is all I can say, to be honest with you. These are people called Binky, God's sake. I mean, what kind of name's that? What can you say, apart from Christ Almighty? And so Susie set about harbouring a new ambition, one that would impress this social set and help her to remain a beautician. Which I think is quite bad, really. If it's lawful and it's what you want to do, then you should never ever be ashamed of the job that you do. Else, why do it? So Susie's new ambition was to remain working as a beautician, but on a cruise ship. She'd do the job that she was qualified for, and get to see the world travelling to different exotic locations. Almost immediately, she landed a year's position doing just this on the liner, the QE2, where coincidentally, a fellow worker at the same time was a man named Stephen Wright, who would go on to infamy himself more than 25 years later, as the UK serial killer, the Suffolk Strangler. As you can imagine, when this detail was unearthed many years later, the press had a speculative field day, yet Stephen Wright has been ruled out as a suspect in Susie's disappearance. I must stress that now. Working on the QE2 was an awakening for Susie, for aside from seeing the world that year, she also discovered a bit of a sexual awakening for herself and she took several lovers while still retaining David Hodgkinson back home in the UK. One constant lover of hers throughout this period on the QE2 was 21 year old John Hall, a hairdresser on the ship who soon became inseparable from her and their relationship continued once both were back in the UK. Eventually both were to realise that they didn't share the same ambitions and wants as the other and they drifted apart, but they made and continued an arrangement 
where the pair would meet each other regularly for purely sexual relationship, irrespective of whoever the other was seeing at the time. Back on dry land, Susie also found work as a beautician at the Kensington Hilton Hotel, and was to move into a two-bedroom flat in Disraeli Road in Putney, using the proceeds of an inheritance that she'd got from her late grandmother. Yet it was almost as though Susie could never settle with the lifestyle or the money that she had at the time, and with the drive that she had, she always wanted to achieve more. She still retained relationships with several men, including but not limited to David Hodgkinson and John Hall, and although she didn't earn the kind of money her ambition commanded as a beautician, she remained working at the Kensington Hilton for several months. Then early in 1985, she found a different path of career that she believed would be ideal. Walking into the office of Sturgis and Sons in Fulham Road, the manager Mark Gurdon was impressed with Susie's confident manner and appearance, and he offered her a job as a negotiator almost immediately. Now this would be an ideal role for her, she could work in the constant and busy environment of property sales, and with her basic salary plus commissions, she could hope to earn in excess of £12,000 per year, which was considerably more than she earns as a beautician, and it was a proper respectable wage at the time. Soon after joining Sturgis, Susie became more self-assured and an exceptionally able negotiator, she fitted in and was well liked by her colleagues and became a familiar figure in her company car, the White Metro, which she would take to flat and house viewings for potential clients. Hard working and driven as ever, she would often eat lunch at a desk in Sturgis or only take a minimal break lest she miss a call that could lead to an all-important commission. And as Susie's desk was the one nearest to the window, she was noticed foremost by passers-by. In effect, she became the smiley, glamorous face of Sturgis. Aside from a busy week working the chaotic hours that estate agents keep due to the times people can of course view properties, Susie now found her social and working life more hectic than ever, moving in ever-increasing circles with her new colleagues, visiting fashionable London wine bars such as Crocodile Tears on Fulham High Street and eating at trendy places such as Tootsie's or Little Italy. She still had a series of short-term relationships, invariably with her type of partner, professional men in their 20s or 30s, tall and handsome in a conventional way, yet she maintained sexual relations with several old flames at the same time. It became this aspect of Susie's life, the romantic side, shall we say, the police became more convinced held the key to what had happened to Susie. Such an involved personal life could have had a bearing on her disappearance, and with Susie being sexually free-spirited, there was always the possibility that a jealous lover had confronted her about her relationships with other men, and an argument had gotten out of hand. Yet the men who this would seem most likely to be, Adam Lee Good, David Hodgkinson and John Lee, had all been satisfactorily ruled out of any suspicion by police. Yet with a sex life obviously as complex as Susie's, and the compartmentalised way that she kept her personal affairs, it was possible that there was another regular lover that was kept a secret. An intense investigation uncovered several men 
who came forward to say that they'd been involved in relationships or sexual liaisons with Susie, yet all were eliminated from the investigation. So was the lover possibly a married man with lots to lose? Friends came forward to report that Susie had recently hinted to them of a relationship that she'd begun with a married man, and despite being told that she was asking for trouble by doing this, she seemed unconcerned. Although she was secretive about this man, more than one friend was left with the opinion from things that Susie had let slip that this man hailed from or had some connection with Bristol. Bristol will play a part in this tale later on. Despite the mass appeal, no married men ever came forward to volunteer that they were having a relationship with Susie. What police could never ascertain was whether there'd been more than one married lover. Several people who knew Susie all volunteered that she'd suggested such a lover in her life at different times. Was this a lengthy clandestine relationship that had lasted two or perhaps three years, or was it different married men that she was referring to each time? Perhaps this was the source of the anonymous bunch of red roses that had been delivered to the Sturgis office shortly before her disappearance, as checks with people such as Adam, David and John to see if one of those had sent them proved negative. Unexplained flowers had also been delivered to Susie's flat in Putney at around the same time. Was it from the same person? So was it possible that Susie had gone to meet a lover that afternoon? Nobody else at Sturgis could recall a Mr Kipper. There was no one on the Sturgis books of that name, there was no card filled out, and a check of other estate agents in the area again drew a blank, and a name such as that would be at the forefront of someone's mind, you'd imagine, due to its uncommonness. It seemed obviously a false name, yet why would you choose a name that would stand out and be remembered so? Had Susie met a lover at her flat for afternoon sex, wrote a name in her diary for cover, and took keys on a pretense to cover for a liaison, and was heading back to work at around 2.45pm, which would explain the sighting of Susie by Barbara Whitfield, and the direction in which she was travelling. But that's just more speculation. Throughout the appeal, more than one police officer said that there were only two definitive pieces of confirmed fact about the case, the time that Susie left the Sturgis office and the time that her car was discovered abandoned. Exactly what happened in those nine and a bit hours between these times has never been determined. There are sightings of smartly dressed men and women, bottles of champagne, white Ford Fiestas in different locations, and smart blue BMW cars that are all common themes and have over time become part of the canonical estimated events that day. There is also a fair share of coincidence involved in the Susie Lamplew disappearance as well. A hell of a lot of it is so coincidental that you'd struggle to believe it. Like this for example. At the end of January 1987, Susie had been missing for six months and the investigation was waning somewhat. But then new information came to police attention that was red hot and rejuvenated the investigation. Back in August 1986, businessman Richard Ward had been walking his dog on his regular route in Queen's Grove, St John's Wood, when he noticed an expensive looking metallic blue 2 litre BMW 518 series car abandoned there. 
The car didn't move over several weeks, which became months, and each time Richard passed, he took more details of it in, because he was a motor enthusiast and he liked the car. It had Belgian number plates, and he wondered why no one would miss such an expensive car. Richard surmised that the vehicle must have been stolen, and perhaps British police had not traced the owner due to the complicated procedures that tracing a foreign vehicle must entail. Now Richard became a bit obsessed with this car, and eventually, early in 1987, he thought that he may try to trace the owner himself if the police weren't going to bother, with a view to even possibly buying the car from the owner. So he duly used the Belgian Automobile Association, take note there, British plot, and before long, information came back to him that the vehicle was registered to a man living in Antwerp. The man's name was David Kuiper, which in Flemish sounds something like Kipper. This struck Richard immediately, and with Susie Lamplew in mind, contacted police. The name and the car connection excited the Lamplew squad, and they looked into why it was in a side street in St John's Wood. A check with Belgian authorities revealed that the vehicle had been reported stolen from the seaside town of Nocky Heist on the 20th of September. Strangely, some weeks after Richard Ward had first noticed it. The registered owner was a David Kuiper, apparently an Israeli citizen who'd given an Antwerp address, but the actual owner of the vehicle was a 33-year-old diamond dealer who lived at the same address named David Rosengarten, who sometimes used his mother's maiden name of Kuiper, but the David Kuiper registered owner was a separate person to him, who was an elderly Israeli uncle. Are you confused? I was a bit confused, yet. Yeah. Apparently, two Davids, one address, one uses the same name as the other sometimes. Detectives from the Lamplew Inquiry flew out to Antwerp to interview Rosengarten, and it soon became clear that he wasn't their man. He looked only vaguely like the artist's impression of Mr. Kipper, and not only was he adamant that he did not know and had never met Susie, but he could also produce a receipt from an Antwerp garage that clearly showed that the BMW was having a service there on Monday the 28th of July 1986. This was double-checked for its authenticity and was found to be correct. It was never satisfactorily explained what the vehicle was doing in a London street or the circumstances in which it disappeared, nor why it had been reported stolen so late. And even though police were left with a definite impression that Rosengarten was involved in some form of shady dealings, he was completely unconnected to the disappearance of Susie Lamplew. It was pure circumstance and coincidence and back to square one with no suspects. Not yet, anyway. The searches and inquiries had continued and every single line of inquiry available was followed up in those first crucial weeks but got nowhere. And perhaps inevitably, police then turned to guess what? Do I even need to say it really, do I? Good old Crime Watch UK. BBC, you twats. By the way, on a bit of an offside about uh, Crime Watch... You can sign my petition to give the BBC a kick up the arse and bring back Crime Watch UK. I've shared details of it all over my social media. If you haven't already, then I hope you can sign it. 
Thank you very much. In October 1986, a reconstruction of Susie's last known movements in the days leading up to her disappearance was broadcast on that month's Crime Watch edition, and millions of people who'd followed the story in the media for weeks now sat down to watch a reenactment of it, voiced over by Sue Cook herself. Get yourselves on YouTube, there are plenty of episodes of Crime Watch on there to see, and a legend of a user known as Redcard74 has been posting proper, proper early classic crime watch. Passes the time an absolute treat, and it's a gold mine for any enthusiast research. So yet, although a furious amount of recalls was received following this programme, nothing was received that brought detectives any closer to a solution. By this time, Diana Lamplew had not sat idly by whilst the search for her daughter continued around her. Using her drive, this woman had, before the end of August 1986, found a way to keep Susie's name alive, needing to throw herself into some form of keeping busy. She started by redecorating the family home, then she sorted the garage out, and half to keep the publicity about her missing daughter alive, and half for her own sanity and the pure need to keep occupied, she created the Susie Lamplew Trust which was launched just 128 days after Susie had disappeared. Diana hoped that the Trust would go some way to be able to institute research to create guidelines for working professional women, as well as helping to support people who were undergoing similar trauma as the Lamplews themselves. It would promote personal safety, and Diana went on to compile a list of trustees, consultants and no fewer than 50 patrons who were comprised of actors, television personalities and politicians who all helped in the trust's early days. It quickly grew and was registered as a charity with a slogan adapted from T.S. Eliot that read From the end there is a beginning. Since 1986, the Susie Lamplew Trust has grown considerably and it still exists to this day, being instrumental in the founding of such Acts of Parliament designed for personal safety like the Private Hire Vehicles Act and the Protection from Harassment Act. It helped found organisations and charities such as Get Connected and Personal Safety Week and it still works tirelessly to promote and encourage personal safety. A link to the Susie Lamplew Trust website is with the show notes this week, so please take time to have a look at the remarkable work that they continue to do for people's safety, read some of their amazing achievements, and perhaps you may even want to share the page or even get involved and support. It's a wonderful and worthwhile organisation to do so. A memorial service for Susie was held at All Saints Church in East Sheen, the same church where Susie had once been a member of the choir, on the 1st of March 1987. It was attended by more than 300 people, many who knew Susie of recent and of old, many who had never met her but had simply been touched by her disappearance, and several patrons of the Susie Lamplew Trust. There was of course no coffin or floral tributes, instead light dress and a simple buttonhole worn by all attending. The clergy's role in the service was kept to a minimum, and instead the service took the form of a biography of Susie, followed by a series of readings from members of the family, several friends and colleagues, police officers involved in the investigation, and senior figures in the Susie Lamplew Trust. The most powerful and afterwards widely quoted words of the service 
came from Susie's father, Paul Lamplew, who said, when given his unscripted reading, While we do not believe Susie is still alive, we also do not believe that she is dead. That is the paradox. But we must get on with our lives. We must live on positively, and that is the message of this service. Now just stop for a minute here and take stock of this miraculous family. I spoke before of the Susie Lamplew Trust and the good work that it's done and it continues to do since its inception. This wasn't created some time afterwards, after the family had had time to worry and grieve and fall apart and mend again. The genesis of this trust came whilst the investigation was still in its early stages, less than a month afterwards. It launched just 128 days after Susie had vanished. Diana Lamplew became used to and comfortable when speaking to the media. She used it for positivity, and she explained this best when she was interviewed on television one night in early 1987. She was a guest on the popular Wogan television chat show in early 1987, and one of the questions asked by the stand-in presenter was her thoughts to the public opinions held by some that she courted publicity, and she actually enjoyed being in the limelight. Diana's response, like the professional that she'd become, was Oh, it's funny, lots of people do ask me on this. It doesn't occur to me because I'm doing a job which I know needs doing. I think that the thing is, what they underestimate, is that when something horrific like this happens, you have an enormous burst of energy which comes into you. Now that energy must be used. I wanted to find Susie. I terribly, badly wanted to find her. The only way I could use that energy was by actually talking to the press, hoping the press would find her. In looking for her, I got across the police, so that energy is there, and it had to be used. I found a thing that needed doing, and I started the trust because of that, and what I found was that I had to forgive myself. I had to forgive myself for the fact that I couldn't find her, and the fact that I couldn't be with her. The rest of the words of the segment were drowned out by the thunderous standing ovation that Diana Lamplew received. What an absolutely remarkable woman. The passing of a year since Susie went missing proved to be a symbolic watershed for all concerned. 365 days of some of the most intense police work and mass media interest, unprecedented for a missing person at that time, had failed to locate her. It wasn't as if police hadn't tried. On the contrary, this was one missing person that gained more attention than countless other people who went missing at around the same time, many of whom could still be missing to this day. But hope was somehow now in the past for all concerned. They didn't give up the drive to find out what had happened, but no one now expected Susie to return, and both police and her family believed that Susie was no longer alive. But it was still difficult for the Lamplew family to accept that Susie was gone. Each time the case was mentioned in the newspapers, more than one member of her family found themselves thinking idly that they must discuss certain details mentioned with Susie, only to the next second remember, agonisingly, that they couldn't. If one of the Lamplew daughters would telephone their parents, more than once both for a second mistook the voice for Susie's. They were that similar. Her presence still filled the Lamplew home in photographs, the type of things parents keep that their children make for them in school and 
that type of thing, and a stained glass window that had been erected in the wall by the front door. It depicted a serene scene of lilies and daffodils, and the words, Susie Lamplew, although absent, her light still shines. As time went by, the family eventually came around to facing the likelihood that Susie was no longer alive, and friends and family members who considered that Susie may have deliberately orchestrated her disappearance for some unknown reason gradually came around to the same way of thinking. But it was to be 1994 before the Lamplew family made the difficult decision to have Susie declared legally dead, having long since arranged the sale of her flat and donated her possessions to charity or shared them amongst family and friends. Susie's disappearance became one of the most publicised and celebrated cases of the 20th century all over the UK media, and the case is still widespread known to this day. Yet very little is known for definite, despite the investigation being reopened in 2010 and looked at numerous times over the years. There's no discernible crime scene and nobody, although several possible burial sites have been considered and looked at during the many searches for Susie, no trace of her has ever been found. Last year on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I covered the case of another woman who disappeared in mysterious circumstances like Susie, the 1990 case of Trevelyn Evans. That episode is called Back in Two Minutes, if anyone fancies a listen if you haven't already heard it. And in that episode, I went through what was known about Trevelyne's disappearance and then gave my own theories, which I shall now do with Susie's case. Now, I never suggest that I'm right in what I say. I make observations on the available evidence, and I'll do the exact same thing with Susie's case. There are several theories about what happened. I'm not the first amateur sleuth to think about it, and I'm sure that I won't be the last either. So firstly then, is it possible Susie disappeared of her own accord? Police had all but ruled this out as a possibility, because there was absolutely no indication that Susie was planning any kind of disappearance. Not to get headspace for a bit, or go off on a moonlight flit with a lover for a few days. None of Susie's clothes had been packed up or were found to be missing from her flat, apart from what she had on when she vanished. There were no personal effects apart from the everyday items that would routinely be in a handbag missing from her flat, and there was even a half-finished dress on the sewing machine there. Further, she had a full work diary for the week, had made arrangements to collect a checkbook and card from the pub where they'd been found later that Monday evening, as well as arrangements to attend an American football match at the former Wembley Stadium later that week. She wasn't found to have any money worries and was not involved in any unlawful activities, nor had she any known illnesses, history of depression or mental unwellness. None of her family, friends or colleagues reported Susie being anything but normal as she ever was. And she left the estate agents that lunchtime taking just her purse and keys and leaving a handbag with essential items such as a hairbrush and lipstick behind at her desk all the hallmarks of someone very firmly rooted in the there and then. Plus Susie was so close to her family and friends that it's almost impossible to believe she could voluntarily disappear in such a cryptic way and put her loved ones through so much trauma. Now, this isn't a voluntary disappearance whatsoever. 
Nor do I believe that Susie had gone off to meet a lover that day and was taken. If the plan was to have some afternoon delights with a lover, then why the need to arrange some sort of cover story? Why not just call in sick to Sturgis that day, or even go home saying that you had a headache or something? So that then means that Susie was abducted, but was it by a stranger or someone that she knew? And another crucial question, where was she taken from? The police theory was that Susie made the appointment to see Shorrells Road with Mr Kipper when someone giving that name either rang the Sturgis office on Saturday the 26th of July when Susie was working during the weekend or came into the office that day. On Monday the 28th of July she kept the appointment and drove to Shorrells Road to meet the prospective client as agreed and showed him around number 37. When the tour of the property was complete Mr Kipper spoke to Susie outside, perhaps a conversation observing the structure or outside fascia of the property and gardens. He used some ploy to persuade her to give him a lift to Stevenage Road and at some point during this journey all charm and facade disappeared and he threatened Susie sufficiently to be able to force her into another vehicle that was parked in this street. At this point she was taken away to an unknown location and an uncertain fate. But whilst this theory has its strengths, it also has its weaknesses. Shorrells Road is a suburban street, and through the mass inquiry, no one reported seeing any form of disturbance there that day. Even the witnesses who saw the two people outside the house reported nothing of the sort, only Harry suggesting he thought they may be arguing. I refer to them as the two people, because it cannot be said definitively that this is Susie and her abductor. Smartly dressed people in Fulham would have been a commonplace sight in the 1980s yuppie boom and there is of course the uncertainty about Susie's car being a mile away at the crucial time. The police theory does not explain the discrepancies between these possible sightings in Shorrells Road and Susie's car in Stevenage Road nor does it explain the sighting reported by Barbara Whitfield who was certain that she'd seen Susie at 2.45pm that afternoon driving down Fulham Palace Road. Now I do believe Barbara's recollection to be well-meaning, but incorrect. How many times have you waved to someone you think is somebody else in a car that drives past you at speed? My mum, bless her, still does it all the time to this day. There are many strong witnesses to place Susie's car in the spot where it was found hours before, so I do suggest Barbara to be mistaken here. If you're listening, Barbara, it's easily done, and I'm sure it's all well-meaning too. If the police theory mentioned before was correct, her abductor would either have to be someone so experienced, calculating and practised at putting on a front that Susie felt no threat from him at all, or he was someone that she knew and felt comfortable enough to be in a car with. If it was someone that she knew, then why? It could boil back to being a jealous lover, but if that were true, it would have to be someone who'd avoided the massive police investigation into Susie's personal life, and I believe that the investigation was thorough enough that such a person would have come to light. There is the possibility, as we've mentioned, that this may have been a married man who never came forward, or perhaps a person who had seen Susie 
and whose eye she'd caught, one who'd made unwelcome attentions towards her. Yet if this was a crime born out of anger, then why not attack Susie at her home or that evening somewhere? Why in the daytime in a suburban street? Why was a row not heard? I don't think this is a lover who took her. My own theories of what happened to Susie are as follows, and I believe there are two possibilities. Someone had seen Susie beforehand. A desk was located by the window at the Sturgis office, and as a highly attractive young woman, she would have been very noticeable. She would have turned heads. Reports did come in of a smartly dressed man seen looking intently into Sturgis' window sometime in the days before Susie's disappearance, but this is of course to be expected at an estate agent. Or was he looking past the properties advertised, and was actually looking at Susie? A plan formulates in his mind. Go in and speak to her, arrange a viewing of a property nearby, and make sure that it's Susie who conducts the viewing. This makes it more likely that he went into the office in person and arranged it with her, else he couldn't be sure that a different member of Sturgis staff would be the one who turned up. Susie happily arranges this. Perhaps she flirts with him, thinking of a possible commission for herself, and writes down the name that the man has given her, Mr Kipper, possibly one that the quick thinker has made up on the spot, or possibly a name that's familiar to him for one reason or another perhaps as a nickname. When Monday arrives, he goes to Shorrell's Road armed with a bottle of champagne, perhaps to add to the non-threatening and plausible persona he wishes to portray. It adds to the upwardly mobile and confidence and charming air, or perhaps it was for some form of celebration later on. Susie meets him there, she shows him around the house, and all the while he's sweet-talking her so she doesn't feel threatened. You can only walk around a house for so long, and eventually both go outside. He maybe keeps her talking as he walks her to a car, and then as she opens the door to get in, the Mr Kipper persona changes. With the use of a knife, possibly even a firearm, he threatens Susie and makes her get into the passenger seat. This would explain why the passenger door was still locked, and he moves the seat back to allow for the abductor to drive the vehicle. He drives the short distance of a mile to where he's left his own vehicle in Stevenage Road, with Susie absolutely petrified into silence and inaction from the threats of violence and fear of what was going to happen to her. You can't blame someone. You never know how you'll react in such a situation unless you're placed in it. And it's a situation that I sincerely hope anybody listening is never ever placed into. Arriving at Stevenage Road, he abandons the vehicle in a hurry, not wasting valuable seconds taking time to park properly and correctly because he needs to get Susie into his own car and get away. Perhaps he's threatened Susie to do exactly as he says, to remain calm and quiet and not make a scene and she'll be fine. And after stopping the vehicle as close to his own car as he can, he gets out of the driver's side goes around to the passenger side and drags Susie out, pushes the catch down on the passenger door before shutting the door so it locks, and into the passenger seat of his own car. This would only take seconds, and pushing her into the back or even the boot of the vehicle would more likely draw attention. In seconds, 
he is in the driver's seat and driving off to an unknown location with a captive Susie. The location is unlikely to be too far away. He's not likely to set off on a drive to the Shetland Islands to do what he's got in mind, is he? But it would be somewhere remote and private. It most likely was an outdoor location, but of course it may have been a premises they had access to. Once there, I believe it's likely that he killed Susie, undoubtedly after a prolonged sexual assault. He then disposed of the body in a nearby pre-chosen location. The second theory that I consider is pretty much the same as the first, but there's a further possibility here. When he'd made the appointment, did he wait and watch the Sturgis office at around the crucial time, knowing Susie would be leaving the office to go to the appointment that he'd made with her? He knew a car would be nearby, and there's no parking on Fulham Road, so it had to be off in a nearby side street. So did he follow her? He may have even possibly known her car and waited nearby to it, and abducted her in Whittingstall Road, then drove straight to Stevenage Road, where his own car was waiting. Perhaps Susie never did make it to Shorrells Road. For 32 years now, the Susie Lamplu case has raised questions and theories like this, and it's true what many people have said beginning with the initial investigation the only things known as definitive in the case is that Susie left her office and a car was found just before 10pm by police. Everything else, however convincing a theory, must remain speculation. Diana and Paul Lamplew came to believe that Susie had been abducted and murdered and by 1994, as we said, they made the painful decision to have their eldest daughter declared legally dead. They never had Susie to bury never a last resting place for her, and they so made her live on through the Susie Lamplew Trust, a legacy that's grown from strength to strength. Paul and Diana worked tirelessly at this for many years before enforced retirement due to ill health, with both being awarded OBEs for the extensive work that they've done to promote personal safety. Tragically, Diana Lamplew suffered a massive stroke in 2003, and was subsequently diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. She was to spend the next eight years of her life in care, visited daily by Paul Lamplew, until she sadly passed away on the 18th of August 2011. She was 75 years old. On the 12th of June 2018, aged 87 years, Paul Lamplew himself passed on peacefully, after several years of living with Parkinson's disease. Neither he nor Diana ever found out what had happened to Susie. But whilst they passed on not knowing what had happened to Susie, both were, at least in their minds, convinced that they knew who was responsible. They were both convinced that the man responsible for the disappearance of Susie was locked away in one of Britain's highest security prisons and is unlikely ever to be released. They know this because the man, a convicted murderer and sex offender who was jailed for life in 1989 for a horrific sex murder committed just a year after Susie's disappearance, was actually named by the Metropolitan Police in 2002 as being the man they believe murdered Susie Lamplew. Now it's a rare, almost unprecedented move to name someone like this, 
but police are that sure that Susie's killer is behind bars already. However, I must stress, no one has to date ever been charged with Susie's abduction and murder. And you'll meet him and hear of his horrific crimes in next week's episode, though many of you, I'm sure, will undoubtedly know his name already. I'm sure that Susie's story is a familiar case to many, if not most, listeners, and as I said, it's a lot higher profile than the usual cases that I cover here on the show, but it's an enduring mystery that's always intrigued me, and as always, I try to put out what I myself would like to hear as a listener. The complexities of Susie's case, I think, warrant an in-depth study, and that's what I've tried to do here for the two-part season finale. Next week I hope to be able to tie it all in neatly and I'll bring you the story of the prime suspect in Susie's disappearance, the past crimes he committed, the horrific murder that earned him a life sentence and the evidence that links him to the Susie Lamplew case. Have a listen and see what you guys think. As I said at the start of the episode, the theories I've outlined here are just that, theories. I don't profess to be right but nor would I say anything that I knew to be wrong, would I? I hope that you found this episode entertaining and interesting, and please feel free to discuss with me on the thread in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group, or through my social media, where if you don't already follow me, then the links can be found with this week's show notes and recommended reading. Also included in the show notes this week is the link to the Susie Lamplew Trust website, For anyone interested in seeing what they're about and the great work that they do, it's well worth checking out. Thanks so much for joining me this week guys. I hope you can again next week for the final time this series before I put my feet up for half an hour, have a brew, scratch my arse and then crack right back on with the next series, Series 3. Like I haven't started doing that already. I'll wrap things up here now. So as ever, I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys happy and safe times, and I shall speak to you again soon. Take care all, thanks for joining me, and goodbye for now.